Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hi, this is Alan Clark at the Hollies, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. I got to take a little time, a little time to think things over. I better read between the lines in case I need it when I'm older, diggers. Hello. Konnichiwa. Hola. Aloha. Niao. Bienvenue to Deeper Digs this week. Got a big one on tap for you. Mick Jones from Foreigner is in the house. All right, let's get some quick business out of the way. Uh, yes. <laughs> Finally, episode 19 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast is in production. Uh, it's part two of our 1969 take, uh, where we believe peak America and peak revolutionary rock and roll resides. Not that we won't see some amazing stuff down the line in the 70s, 80s, and beyond, but just that we will be entering a new world as we leave the 1960s behind and go from the music being more revolutionary to being more evolutionary. All right, I'll give you a quick preview. Uh, let's see, we left off uh, episode 18 with the Beatles on the rooftop uh, in uh, Mayfair, London, uh, and the Stones in Hyde Park, uh, London, memorializing their old founder, Brian Jones, in the first part of the year. Uh, we then took you to the moon and showed how science fiction in books, TV, and movies affected the music and vice versa. Part two finishes off the year with the two big polar opposite cultural events, uh, Woodstock and Altamont. Uh, but are they that different? <laughs> Looking deeper, it appears to us each could have easily gone the other's way. Big difference? 
Well, probably set and setting, as our old friend Timothy Leary suggests. Maybe one being in a bucolic location in summer with water and beauty uh, is a better choice than some hilly scrub brush in December where the winds howl cold. More importantly, though, is that uh, another old friend's vision of the future has come true. Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message in episode nine. Well, in 1969, with all of these events being filmed, now, 50 years later, it is evident these films of those events are what we remember and not the actual events themselves, leading us to conclude 1969 is the beginning of our mediated reality that uh, we all swim in these days. Ah, oh, just a few more weeks and it will be in your hands, diggers. Okay, just a little adamandeve.com business here. Uh, well, it sure sounds like you diggers have been paying attention and perhaps needed to fill quarantine time with some sexy stuff. Uh, we did pretty good last month when we got our first report, so we are keeping our sponsorship of adamandeve.com. Please go get 50% off almost any single item, and then at checkout, use the code DIGS, D-I-G-S, for all kinds of extra free stuff, plus free shipping. It's just that easy. AdamandEve.com with the checkout code D-I-G-S, DIGS. There's the sex. Uh, the the drugs, you, you got to get on your own. Uh, maybe next week we'll have a CBD or a THC ad, huh? But now, let's get to the rock and roll. special guest is with us today. The architect of the band, Foreigner, Mick Jones, will be joining us. A lot of people give these guys a hard time. Um, called arena rock or corporate rock sometimes, I know many of you may be turning your nose up and thinking, these are the guys who helped destroy rock and roll. Or they were playing it safe while others were out there changing the world. You know, I can even hear myself say that at one time or another, but Really? Uh, that's unfair. Uh, were they huge between 1977 and 1985? <laughs> Without doubt. Uh, they owned the charts. And yes, they never stray far from their original classic rock sound. Though I'd say they did keep adding subtle tricks along the way that capitalized on their previous successes and made them even bigger and bigger. Here's what I see now. 
first, uh, it is impossibly hard to write a hit song. Just one. <laughs> I will gladly nod in approval to just about anyone who can pull that off. Now, how about pulling it off more than a dozen times? Yeah, that is very special. As for influence, um, maybe Mick and the Foreigner Boys didn't cause ripples through the ages, but they certainly did in their time. They were impossible to ignore if you were in the charts game at that time. Uh, in fact, uh, purely by coincidence, uh, on the day I spoke to Mick, unbeknownst to me, our friend Martin Popoff on his History in Five Songs podcast released an episode entitled the Foreigner Effect, where Martin shows how Mick's extraordinary success influenced some other rock acts like Rainbow, Uriah Heep, Ted Nugent, and Bad Company. Well, Mick did help produce their 1986 Fame and Fortune album, so that one is not a complete surprise. So you see, uh, there was some influence there at the time. Uh, how successful were they at selling hits? Well, to the tune of 80 million records worldwide, 16 top 40 songs. So who is Mick Jones? Oh, why does he get all the accolades from the band's success? Well, as I said at the top, he was the architect. Uh, he's the guy that slaved for 15 years, paying his dues as sideman, assistant, producer, etc. You know, living small and close to the ground so he could avoid becoming a dentist. Yeah, he and Roger Taylor were going to open a practice in Norwich. Oh, I kid. I kid. I kid. Well, sort of, as you'll see. Born in Portsmouth, uh, in the very south of England, he fell in love with rock and roll just like the rest of us, and then he got some lucky breaks, as you will hear. Very early lessons in the UK, going to France to work with Johnny Halliday and others, hanging with the Beatles just before they are coming to America, working with Jimmy Page, on and on. And then he hooks up with Gary Wright of Spooky Tooth, where Mick is in the last iterations of that act. But that is the prototype. That is where it all comes together in Mick's head. Then it's just assembling the right guys together. All of that accumulates in finding the voice, the singular voice that just fits perfectly for the music he puts together in demos. Of course, I'm talking about the amazing soulful sounds of Mr. Lou Graham. Together, the two of them, for about 10 years, can do no wrong. From the opening track of the first album, Feels Like the First Time, to the monster-powered ballad, I Want to Know What Love Is, there <laughs> is just no stopping these guys. But by 1990, like many things, the music has changed drastically, and the partnership between Mick and Lou was at a low ebb. So they did what bands do. There was a split. Uh, but it came and went for several years. They would get back together, and while they could get it back on tour, it didn't really happen on record anymore. In 2006, Mick made a more permanent change and brought in Kelly Hansen on vocals, who could do the big singing and perhaps brought more uh, dynamic frontman capabilities with him. He's been with Mick ever since, and together in 2009, Foreigner was able to crack the top 40 once again. This year, the band was about to do something insanely cool. Um, back in 2017, Lou Graham, Dennis Elliott, Ian McDonald, and Al Greenwood, uh, all original members, would join the current lineup for select shows and for a few songs. 
uh, last year became a little more frequent, uh, though Lou continues to have health issues. So what was anticipated to be more of a tour called Double Vision then and now uh, didn't quite materialize. But this year, they were ready to really do it, along with bringing Kansas along with them to open. It would have been classic rock heaven. Uh, That is until COVID-19 hit. And we know everybody is now off the road. So we are honored to have Mick's first interview since the concert business crashed, along with most everything else due to the pandemic. We do talk a little bit about it and what might be on the other side of this whole mess. Um, But mostly, I want to get the full career story of the man and how the pieces all fit together in the creation of Foreigner. So what's a guy going to do when he can't be on stage being a jukebox hero? He is going to talk to me in great detail about how he got to be one of the most successful songwriters of the rock and roll era. Go grab a good cup of tea and let's get to know Mick Jones, a foreigner. Welcome to Deeper Digs, Mick Jones. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm um, the sun's out, and uh, it's a beautiful day where I am, and um, enjoying life while we can. That's fantastic <laughs> to hear. Uh, yeah. Even though we are all in, uh, you know, a strange reality uh, yeah. that uh, I don't think any of us have seen, um, uh, certainly on a global scale, uh, since World War II. Um, so yeah. l- let me start with a, a temperature check on that 800 pound gorilla, you know, as a veteran touring and recording art- artist, um, you know, uh, let me get your take on maybe what you see on the other side of this global crisis, um, you know, specifically for music. Um, well, I think, um, people are obviously starting to, um, form some kind of defense uh, uh, just really to, to try and preserve the better parts of what of, of um you know what we brought into the solar system mm-hmm. or you know i i i think people are desperate for that i think that's going to help people that want to see a world that is um um, more um, uh, dedicated to the well-being of all people, mm-hmm. um, not just the chosen few or the 
1%, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's, it's politically, it, it, it's a problem, you know. Um, great ideas floating around uh, for the future, but um, if it ends up being um, corralled by co- corporate uh, America, then it's not going to go very far or it's going to go in exactly the same direction and we'll have gained nothing. So it's important that people um, speak up. When you say speak up, it always sends, you know, people go, oh, oh communist. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, that's, that's what they think. That's why they let people like Mitch McConnell mm. on the loose, you know, mm. so he can... Um, Protect his corporate clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I hear you there. Uh, You know, uh, I I think it's fair. And and just so the audience knows, you you live in New York, uh, which, you know, is at this point the epicenter of this god-awful pandemic. Uh, The the state itself has um, recorded almost uh, a sixth of all the deaths around the world Mm -hmm. uh, as it stands right now. And and, and then you look at America from a larger scale, uh, and we now, we have one-third of the uh, cases uh, in the world. And I think that proves that we just did not do a very good job of managing this, yeah, and well, I don't. We did a, an atrocious job of managing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there's one person that will always deny that. You know, we know who that, <laughs> that is. That toddler, the toddler in chief. Yeah, uh, as I like yeah. to refer to him, and I think you would agree here. Um, but Agent Orange. Agent Orange. <laughs> That's another good nickname. <laughs> yes, we've all got plenty of them. Uh, uh, but, hey, there's something that we can all certainly do about that come November. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I hope those of us that uh, uh, have access uh, to the franchise of voting uh, exercise it uh, mm-hmm. in droves. Uh, there, I, I think a very large statement needs to to occur. Uh, that is, if we can even make it till November, we're that's still six yeah. months out. And uh, you know, uh, you know, both. Uh, not only do we have, uh, you know, a, a viral. Uh, pandemic uh, on our hands, uh, which uh, is killing uh, our population at about a 5% click. Um, uh, It is also uh, turned into an economic uh, disaster that, regardless of the the virus, will be with us for for some time. And that is affecting, um, you know, certainly uh, your world, uh, and, and my world that, you know, the thing that we talk about every day and you practice every day, which is, you know, music. And it, uh, you know, I, I, I now have gone three months, uh, since, uh, uh, my last concert. And by the way, my, my, my last show for you was an, a new British rock outfit, uh, uh, out called the struts. That was the last concert I got to see. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with really? them. And, um, are they good? Oh, they're great. If you if you're if you're not familiar with them, you go listen to them. I think you'd enjoy them. Uh, they 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 sound like they're in your cup of tea. Uh, they're they are a oh, little I bit of a, a little bit of a, of a queen. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, their lead uh, singer Luke Spiller has has been uh, mentioned uh, along with the likes of uh, Mr. Mercury, uh, and uh, <laughs> so um, uh, great band. But that was that was our last uh, our last uh, venture out yeah. to see a concert, and yeah. it's it's been three months, which is unheard of in my life. 
life uh, to go that yeah. long without seeing well, it. It's the whole, uh, the whole list that comes underneath the heading entertainment. Yeah. Really. Everything. It's, yeah. Um, everything is shut movies, down. Movies, sport um, is a huge one. Yeah. Movies as well. Yeah. I mean, people, there are definitely movie addicts uh, around. Yeah. And um, you can't go to you know, the theater. So, I mean, it really does. It really covers the whole gamut of, of everything that we mm -hmm. want to do outside mm -hmm. of a mm -hmm. job, you know. Yeah. And then we lost you guys. Uh, you were going to tour with Kansas uh, this year, yeah. which would have been a fantastic double bill. And uh, yeah. in Kansas was just kind of coming back. I think they have a new album that they're about ready to release. Mm -hmm. And that would have been just just an yeah. amazing uh, opportunity uh, out there. So, uh, again, uh, you know, once we get to, you know, let's say we can control the, the virus and we can kind of get back into uh, a concert setting. You know, do, do you mm -hmm. see it returning to that or do you see something different? Well, um, I, I think, uh, I hope there are some things different. Um, uh, I don't have a list prepared of, of what I'd like, but, um, you know, there's definitely um, improvements uh, as far as, you know, people being able to afford to go to, uh, yeah, that's for their entertainment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is which is a big issue, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Can't I understand, you know, and I understand the um, the economics of it, but it's going to be um, a, a battle between the economics and the um, and the lighter side of uh, of life, you know, of, uh, of of entertainment and the arts, the visual, you know. Movies try and make to gradually start to make this uh, into um, a better a better environment for everybody, a, a better place to, to live, a better place to raise children, to, a better place um, for educational purposes, and uh, you know, there's a lot of great things that are lie waiting if we can only find them or or find the courage to go out and um, and and find them and and encourage people. I mean, I don't mean preach preach to people, but which you know, unfortunately, sometimes goes hand in hand, mm. and you get people preaching about stuff. I don't think that's what we need. I think we need um, genuine willingness to go and defend what we have that is good and to protect what we have in our future. Yeah. Uh, I think what you're saying is that, uh, those of us who maybe, um, usually prefer to be silent need to speak up, uh, and protect mm -hmm. those things that we value, uh, as positives and reject uh, those things that are negatively influencing our lives. Um, uh, I think, you know, I, I'm not afraid to say that, uh, you know, this pandemic is just one instance in um, our uh, our climate change or, or more importantly, our impact 
on our environment that humans are making and that Mother Nature might be uh, beginning to swat back at us. And uh, we probably need to uh, pay attention uh, to yeah. that and, and learn the lesson uh, for, from a spanking like this as opposed to what could be even worse uh, in our future. Yeah. Well, let's let's. Well, get hopefully, our, our our God is friendly. Yeah, and um, yeah, hopefully, He's willing to give us another chance. <laughs> you know, but, cross, uh, we really fingers. have screwed it up so far. Yeah, yeah. I'll, some of us have. Uh, I don't think yeah, you fit in know, that category. Yeah. Uh, you, on the other right. hand. Uh, are uh, a musician that has been done nothing but given us great musical works uh, throughout your life, and so let's let's get into that. Let's let's get into some fun yeah. stuff here. So enough you know, politics, enough politics, <laughs> and and all that. But uh, you know, we have yeah. to address uh, the the pandemic and what's going on because it is it's affected yeah. it's affected. You know, a great star like yourself is actually affected just like the lowest individual that you can think of on this planet uh and and that is the great equalizer uh out here is we mm -hmm. all should be having a new perspective of where we're at but let's start with you all right so if you hadn't chosen a career in music um you know what were the other options uh you know uh, anything from lorry driver to uh, astrophysicist uh like your buddy brian may is uh, mm -hmm. You know, where, where, where do you think you would have ended up had, uh, you know, the muse not touched you when you were young? Well, I was thinking about um, studying to be a dentist. Mm. <laughs> Back to Queen, like uh, yeah. Roger Taylor, the drummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and That's Roger funny. would have started a practice together then. Well, I, 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 I figured that um, teeth were... Very important to people, uh, <laughs> especially that, uh, it's in the very UK. difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that um, was uh, a fairly well-paid um, occupation, yeah. let's say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, that uh, it didn't quite take as long as the other medical branches to to reach some point of, uh, you know, being um, oh, passing exams and all I, that. I just learned so something I about it. You're I a pragmatic thinking. person. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I was on the ball there. But, um, <laughs> and I've actually got a lot, I've met a lot of dental friends uh, over the years, dentists and mm. people that work in dentistry. Mm. And I always, make, makes me chuckle on, you know. Yeah. Are you still fascinated what, 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 with what, that? What, yeah. Do you still go, hmm, you know, I wonder if I could still do that. Uh, <laughs> be a dentist. <laughs> that, that. <clears throat> Mick Jones, rock star by night, dentist by day. Um, there you go. So it, let's say that you ended up being a dentist uh, in uh, Port Portsmouth, which I, I believe you're, you're originally from. Uh, would you still be maybe playing music on the side, busking uh, out there uh, in between your, uh, your dental practice and maybe playing the, the pubs with, uh, with mates? Well, you know, um, really, um, it, it, was, it was a hobby. Is what it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I just happened myself and uh, you know four or five of my friends. You know we were living this sort of. Um, we weren't really living a school life. We were emulating what it was going to be like to be a little older, and heavy accent on um, you know on uh, 
image, um, playing great music, dressing really well mm. with what we could scrape, mm. <laughs> scrape together, you know, and uh, making it, you know, looking good for the girls. That was a good motivator. Were, were you a bit of a teddy boy? No. No, no I wasn't. Was it, were, you, were you a rocker? That was that was Ted, that was before my time. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I was actually lucky. I wasn't exposed to to that too much. We mm. were kind of good. We were sort of uh, we dressed like as Ivy Leaguers and oh. uh, went uh, under cover of the night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. But so, we did, we did. We, 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 we got together and it was about having fun and about dreaming about what we could achieve and uh, gradually seeing through the fog and that the, there was a possibility that I could make um, a go of it and, uh, and really, you know, answer the call. Yeah, because you, you and, grew up in in, in, a, in a depressed uh, England uh, after the war, uh, and uh, probably you know you lived through the rationing period, which I don't think ended until the late nineteen fifties, right? Right. So yeah, the, yeah. The, the only option was to think aspirational. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I I I was lucky. My my father had a. Was um, you know had a, had a good job and um, was able to keep us in sort of you know mm -hmm. kind of middle class, not not upper middle class, but uh, definitely um, what one would call comfortable, I guess. Yeah. And um, so I was fortunate with that, but nevertheless, you know, I had the realities of how how do I find and how do I pay for my first guitar, for example, mm. yeah, <laughs> and my father, you know, um, didn't necessarily make it easy. He made it like, you know, okay, well, if you really want that, you you better find a way of paying for it. And um, so, short of robbing banks, you know, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I turned to my old my old favorite, the music, yeah. um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just lived it. I lived it was a fantasy, you know. Um, the, the the style, the clothing styles, um, and then you know, just people like Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran and Chuck Berry, and all those people sort of were on the wallpaper, you know, in the room, and. Um, uh, I, I had a genuine passion for it. I, I had a feeling that I knew what it was. I kind of had an idea what it was like in America. And um, I guess I was trying to, you know, to, to build my personality and my character with the help of all that reference from those great musicians and Great entertainers, great guitar players, great you know musicians all around, and um, I couldn't imagine rising to that height, you know, and to be um, 
emulated by so many people. Uh-huh. It's just mind-boggling, you know, how far I was fortunate for my music to have reached and how popular it had become eventually. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was a lot of hard work. Yeah, it wasn't. You're, a tremendous you're, amount of hard work. You are not an overnight success. It, you, you are a no. journeyman. You paid your dues, and we're, we're going to get into mm-hmm. that. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. But, you know, you mentioned Gene Vincent, um, uh, Eddie Cochran. Uh, I, I can see those as heroes for you. You know, last weekend we just lost the architect, Little Richard. Um, you yeah. know, and so, you that know, was, who yeah. was your favorite uh, from that original class of rock and rollers? Well, um, I would say I, I played with, um, let me see, I played with, um, uh, Charity Lewis. Oh, I did uh, an album with him called um, "Live Live in London." I think it was called. Uh huh. That was in the mid. Um, that was in the mid seventies. That was the first uh, time I'd been in the presence of of uh, some one of my heroes. Yeah, basically. one of the original legends. Well, actually, right? yeah, with him and with um, uh, with Little Richard mm-hmm. and. Uh, who I also played with briefly. Um, my friend of mine was a, uh, a guitar player who played on most of the tours that came to England. They wouldn't bring the necessarily, you know, the, the, the full count. Yeah. 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 So um, he, uh, he was the, the go-to guy they went to and he would, uh, he would even take me up to London, you know, with him, on a Saturday morning when the radio show started and this was all live and um, he'd uh, get me into the studio and uh, and I just I just remember being there and like hanging out as if I was belonged you know? wow. and, right and um, and I always remember you know having to sort of turn around and think oh well here I go I've got to get that milk train again and uh get back to my little town where I live and uh, get back to reality. And okay, well, we climbed another up to another floor tonight and uh, let's keep going. And, um, you know, so I, I, I kind of learned that I had to really, it had to become the most important thing in my life and that I really was going to need to, make a lot of sacrifices and um if I wanted to pursue it uh, as I believe any artist really does you know make a, make a lot of sacrifices um in your personal life you know in everything that um keeps you going mm-hmm. uh and and just try and remain and try and be inventive and Try and put your heart and soul into into what um, to what you want to do, and uh, the more you put in, it's the old adage, you, you know, the more you get out. Yeah. And um, and there's uh, the only trick to that is um, hard work. No plan and B. I, the, the the dentistry and, was and, uh, put aside for the music. Yes. 
exactly. completely and utterly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard that yeah. story many times. Uh, yeah. For, when talking to uh, to the greats, is that that look in the end, it, it's a job, and and you have mm. to treat it completely and utterly like that. And you, there is no plan B. This is this is it, and you're going to make it go one way or another. Uh, and uh, you know, through hard work and sacrifice, as we mm-hmm. will see as we go through this, uh, it 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 yeah. slowly uh, comes about. So, you know, <clears throat> were were you a, a voracious listener and collector, like of records and things like that, or was it more um, learning through osmosis as a working musician to achieve your your own? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I had no training at all except for friends I had who I would uh, who would help me to you know discover new new chord sequences, new things that I uh, you know I, I I started to play piano at the beginning of um, Foreigner. But I had tinkered around on it, and not very successfully, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but um, but um, I kind of developed my own style, and I, I was willing to take a chance that I could turn that style into sort of my personality of playing. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm not saying, I mean, plus the fact that I was lazy, too, and couldn't be bothered. To <laughs> We're all musicians. Uh, all that, that goes with the territory. Yeah. <laughs> it is all but, about trying um, not to keep a real job when you get right down to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That was, that, was my, um, that was my motto. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, and you. And did. I'm so glad I didn't keep a real job. No, I, we're glad you I would didn't have keep a, a real job. Man. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and you do. You, you, you have a very distinct style of 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 guitar playing. Uh, I hear it. And, Thank you. And I, as I've reacquainted myself with uh, your catalog over the last few days, you know, I can pick it out now. I can kind of mm-hmm. say to myself, Ah, oh, oh, there's. I mean, just and some really, really great hooks. Uh, and and great lines. You know, I wouldn't call you a flashy player uh you know no. but but just just really tasteful uh uh in uh, in your playing and 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 uh, and again it's one of those things that you you know when you put it on you you just know oh yeah, there's mick jones you can you can hear it every time so well that's 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 very kind of you i like that uh that means a lot because it means ah oh, maybe uh Planted a few seeds there, and you did. You left did. a few things here and there. Left a few suitcases unopened. <laughs> you, yes, you have. You have. Okay, so you were born in '44, and by 1961, I think you're 17. You have a couple of minor hits in the UK with Nero and the Gladiators. So, what, what was that first taste of success like? And especially because this is. For, for us Americans, this is pre-Beatles England. So, you know, yeah. how, how was that in 61, you know, kind of getting your first little taste of uh, of uh, fame and fortune? Well, um, I didn't um, actually play on those. They they had 27 different guitar players in near and the Gladiators. Oh, wow. And I was like the 28th or something. <laughs> But I joined the band. They they auditioned me. It was my first uh, opportunity to play a professional gig, mm-hmm. and um, I stood in for one of my friends. I think it, we were, yeah, it was with uh, Mike Berry and the Outlaws. I, if you look back a long way, you'll find 
references to him. Mm-hmm. He was uh, his band was like a school for for musicians for yeah oh, for rock kind of kind musicians. of like an, uh, an Alexis Corner character. In a in a way, but I would say more like um, a little more polished. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a couple of hits with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a song about Buddy Holly. Oh God, what was it called? Um, anyway, look, you can Google him. You'll yeah, Mike Berry and the Outlaws, and that was my first gig, and um, I was like on the on the one one part, you know, really excited. On the other on the other side, I was like nervous as hell and didn't know whether I could even do it, you know. But uh, that was my first test, and that was the one, that was the first hurdle, mm-hmm. was being able to, to do it and to do it right. And uh, that's when the whole, that's when it all started. So, it all uh, opened up for you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not saying it was easy from there either, but. Uh, no, no. A lot of, um, yeah, a lot of living conditions weren't uh, very luxurious. And uh, nor was the, uh, you know, the food. <laughs> when, when I started to live in Paris and that, at least that changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's get into that because this is really fascinating for me. Um, so the gladiators break up, uh, um, uh, Mike Berry and the Outlaws, I, I, I take it, uh, that work dried up. And you head to France from 65 to 71. You know, that's kind of an unusual path. And uh, why and, and how? Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I'd always had a um, um, a love of France. It was the only, uh, it was the only subject that I excelled in at school. French. Oh. And, um, but you know, I was, I just fell into the the whole, the lifestyle, the the glamour, you know, the um, all the stuff. I didn't really realize how much culture I was taking in, you know. But mm-hmm. and then when I first went back to France after after the States, after we'd had our first uh, success, and I'm walking around Paris and I'm looking at the buildings. I'm going, my God, I lived here in all this. <laughs> Incredible beauty, because all I saw was like streets with office buildings, and I mean, very beautiful. But nevertheless, um, my mind was somewhere else. It wasn't on art. Yeah. Although it was art was the backdrop. Um, it was on, um, you know, living the life, learning about the wine, learning uh, how to, to to distinguish one Bordeaux wine from another, and. Uh, so that was top of my list. <laughs> it did help, you know. I mean, I guess Jack Daniels is more, you know, in line for like English American bands, but <laughs> but my, mine was certainly the high end of Bordeaux and Burgundy. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, uh, I uh, I spent a little time in the south of France and. Um, 
went quite a bit of wine tasting uh, uh, oh, there in, you go. The, uh, in the uh, the Rhone uh, region. So uh, oh, ha- haven't made it to Burgundy yet, but uh, will I mean, yeah. of course, as you know, uh, I'm from San Francisco, so we we have our nice little wine country uh, oh, uh, yes, here for ourselves, yeah, of, of which which we uh, indulge in. <laughs> quite a bit uh, around this house yeah. so i i'm with you i i, I much uh, prefer uh, a nice um uh cabernet uh from yeah. uh, uh over uh, jack daniels any day so yeah <laughs> but cool so you uh you got to work with uh, several uh great french artists but most important for me would be johnny halliday uh i'm fascinated mm-hmm. with him he, uh, he you know most americans don't know him um, but uh, yeah. and I think did did you get your first producing credit with a uh, Um I guess it was yeah yeah and uh, and the and you brought in a guitar player uh, to uh, to do some of the licks uh, for that song right <laughs> yeah who was that, that again? was uh, that was um, Jimmy Page who just happens and, to be on um, just about everybody's record uh, prior to Led Zeppelin or or in the, those the days, New York yeah, yeah right. absolutely he was he was yeah. a workaholic yeah yeah but um he was always i mean it was he was he was really so good you know he was he was just you couldn't quite describe his style i i feel in a way if anybody really influenced me he, he definitely was uh, amongst the top Two or three. Uh, he was a crafty player. Mm. He he um, he had studied as he was playing so many sessions. He was studying the American um, musicians, you know, who would play on those uh, re-recorded versions of, uh, uh, of of you know their, their songs in the states, mm-hmm. and um, so he was. Constantly playing on the on what were the popular songs of the day, and um, he uh, he was learning his technique that way. Playing with uh, he played with English musicians. He played with a lot of American musicians. And between he and um, and John Paul Jones, you know they they had they had the lockdown on um, the studio on the. Studio work, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't you couldn't get your toe in uh, edgewise because of uh, of that, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but boy, they were good. They yeah. were good. Yeah, and and that's they a, still are. And Atukase yeah. is is a great song. Uh, and uh, you yeah. know, I can hear the beginnings of uh, of you in there. I, I think uh, our listeners should go and 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 grab that to to learn. Uh, yeah. You know, the first bits of producing because your producing will come in a little bit later here in our story. So you also get to meet the Beatles there in Paris at the height of, of, of Beatlemania. And while we Americans know the story of Ed Sullivan. And, and you know them uh, their tours here uh, until uh, the the last one in Candlestick in '66. You know what was it like uh, in France? Was it the same Beatlemania that we saw here? Um, yeah, pretty much. It was maybe not quite. I mean, America went absolutely ballistic. Yeah, for the for but, the um, right. Yeah, uh, and um, I don't know they. they I think they were more popular with uh, just girls and teenies, <laughs> teeny boppers, you know. Yeah, yeah especially early point. on, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and um, they hadn't, France hadn't quite caught up with it or anticipated it. Uh, so they were taken a bit by surprise, but um, uh, so was everybody who came anywhere near them and listened to them and saw them, you know. It was just, a, I mean, that's that's the biggest gift I think I had was being born in that period, you know, ah. because it was an incredible the, period the of back. invention. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I just thank God every time I... Uh, I hear one of their songs, you know, it's like, my God. Yeah, thank you for opening the door. Where would we have been without you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. As, as we talk about in our, our, our uh, documentary series, Rock and Roll Archaeology, you know, uh, you know the early rock and roll, which we talked about, Little Richard, Gene Vincent, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Elvis, obviously, Chuck Berry, you know, they, they lasted only about three years. And, and then it kind of, you know, uh, goes away, at least from the establishment. They think, oh, thank God this rock and roll uh, was just a fad. Uh, yeah. And uh, and yeah. definitely, you know, between about 1960 to uh, you know the, uh, the the Fab Four taking over the world, um, you mm -hmm. know, music is kind of now uh, uh, soul music, African American music is is still making yeah. some really great strides. But yeah. you know, on the other side of the coin, white music is uh, trying to go back to some simpler, easier, um, less uh, uh, aggressive. Uh, sound uh if you will yeah. un until these guys you know and and yourself included because they, they just open up the door and uh you know and then a, a, a bunch of british acts follow right behind them uh that right. you know reinvent uh this and turn it into this giant um cultural event that is going on now for for 60 years. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned in a, a podcast we did with the Zildjian Company that uh, there's a, a, a piece that uh, came out of the, the, the research with them that uh, they told us that the day after, uh, w well, within a few weeks after the first appearance on Ed Sullivan, they got so many orders for symbols that it took them 15 years to clear out the backlog. <laughs> That's just how wow. significant uh, they were. So now I, I brought them up because similar, yes, you, some, somewhat similar to ventilators. Uh, today, day, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Oh, maybe maybe we should talk to sick, the Zildjian. Oh, we got a little bit of your humor here, Mick. Uh, maybe we should talk to the Zildjian company about making ventilators. Yeah. Uh, they probably do there a very go. good job. So I, I, yeah, I, bring, I bring the Beatles up because you did get to meet with them and hang with them right there at the uh, Be mm -hmm. Beatlemania there in Paris. But most importantly, you do work with George Harrison on Dark Horse. Uh, and you also work uh, with Ringo on Frampton's uh, Peter Frampton's album Wind of Winds of uh, Wind of Change, right? Mm -hmm. So what what was it like actually now working with Beatles? Well, I mean, I had met them in Paris. We were I was um, playing with um, uh, a friend who I'd, I'd met, who actually ended up who who turned out to be. Um, Sylvie Vartan's uh, brother, and Sylvie Vartan was the married to Johnny Holiday. Was married to Johnny Holiday, so I kind of joined the family. Yeah, sometimes would they they kind of took me under their wing, uh, being a starving, you know, um, 
guitar player in Paris. <laughs> uh, and um, they they really did. They 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 provided a. It was it was it was a tough um, tough couple of years for me, mm-hmm. and um, they really uh, looked after me and treated me like a member of the family, and um, I ended up uh, joining her band and um, Johnny Halliday, who was um, had no shame in that area. He downright just walked in and stole me away from her as a guitar player. <laughs> right from the wife's <laughs> band. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, So it was a sort of a kind of a weird family affair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, anyway, um, that opened up a lot of doors for me. And um, I started to um, uh, be able to afford to... Uh, to um you know live a little higher standard of life and um uh you know open open my uh, horizons mm-hmm. a, a little mm-hmm. quite a lot including getting and, to um, hang out with the beatles yes um and one night we were playing on the same bill as them in paris at the uh, olympia theater which is a famous old uh, yeah uh theater in paris mm-hmm. And um, uh, we were opening, no, uh, an artist called Trini Lopez. I don't know whether you've yeah, ever of course. heard that name. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, he came, um, he, he was opening the show. He had just had that big hit, uh, If I Had a Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty weird, but it was, it was fun. And, um, and then... Um, uh, I was on the side of the stage. I'd finish off our part, and, and you know, Mel Evans, who was the uh, yeah, the, the Beatles, the, the all around guy. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Good old Mal. He would, he would, um, yeah, he would run, run on stage, carrying their amps and guitars, and uh, I kind of like bumped into him several times. Um. But, um, you know, we managed to get a laugh out of it each time. And then one night, the um, the curtain would come down after we uh, finished. And uh, then the, the Beatles would come on as we were leaving the stage. And as we were leaving the stage, John Lennon and I collided. And um, I think I must have said some ex- expletive word to, you know, punctuate my feeling <laughs> and um and uh, he, he came up to me and said hey lad are you english and he said we didn't know you really we thought you were one of these froggies <laughs> and, and, I said, and i said actually no i'm uh, yeah i'm british he said, oh come and come up to the dressing room and uh, hang with the with with the guys and uh I kindly accepted the invitation, and uh, and that was the beginning of uh, like five or six days of a hard day's night, and wow. in uh, you know just traveling around Paris to and fro the shows, playing you know all night long in the uh, in the hotel, playing guitars, and just me just sitting there like. In a trance, almost like what is, 
am I really here? Am I really doing this? Kind of, am I actually looking over at Paul McCartney, keep swapping the, the shape of the guitar because he uh, plays He's left, left and right-handed? Right, right. Oh, and, he, he uh, does play both, huh? Yeah, he plays both. Mm. But um, I don't know, so many things happened in that night in my mind. I, I had, you know, I I was so pumped. I I couldn't believe what had what had happened. Quite that I had been there in the midst of. You I mean, got, that was you got the Willy Wonka golden ticket. <laughs> is that what they call it? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, and this is you said this That's is a good the, one. I the, remember that. Yeah, the, the golden ticket. Yes, the Olympia Theater in Paris. So this is like January of 1964 where they mm -hmm. have their three-week residency. So you're on the bill with that. That is when they are mm -hmm. told that uh, they have a number one hit in America and they are going to yep. America. Wow. That's, yep. that's yep. amazing. That's a great, great story. Yeah. Talking to somebody who was there when that seminal event exactly. occurs. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine and I, I can feel from... 50 years history that it still is an important yeah. moment in your life. Oh, yeah. Um, I kind of, we actually were able to sort of recreate it in a, in a new, different way. Um, we were in Stockholm and um, uh, we were, to, I think we were there for about two or three days. And um, uh, we get a phone call from London, and um, guess who it is this time? It's um, Robert Plant, and <laughs> oh, he's York. calling me up. <laughs> and, yeah, that's right. And uh, he calls, calling me up from London, congratulating me on the number one. Uh, I want to know what love is worldwide. Oh, in, in and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm sort of I I knew him very very vaguely. I mean, we we weren't sort of friends at that point, but mm -hmm. um, uh, so I got this incredible phone call. I don't know how to explain how I felt after that either. It I was, can imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the uh, the 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 uh, the the. Uh, the Viking God himself uh, called yeah, to congratulate yeah. you uh, on a job well done. Uh, yeah. For, you know, he said, if Mick, Mick, please, if you've got any more of those songs, I'll just take one. Play them for me first. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, of course I will. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So so after yeah. six years of, of being in, in, in France, you uh, head back home to the UK and you end up in Spooky Tooth uh, working with Gary Wright mm -hmm. uh, on uh, Chris yeah. Blackwell's Island label. Uh, and of course, we'll, we'll get to Foreigner in just a minute here. But I, I find it interesting because this is now a your first collaboration with an American singer, which is duplicated later. So it, was that coincidence or, or 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 am i off there is there is there something there well um gary and i shared very close uh, taste in music together yeah, um mm -hmm. uh i i loved what he'd done in in spooky tooth mm -hmm. i was uh, honored to actually join the band and be part of it uh and um 
you know, he, I, I just happened to, it was a great time for him, I guess. And, and then I kind of made it a great time for me in those years mm-hmm. by joining with him. And, um, you know, I, I really did, um, I guess that's where my if style, if we call it that, um, Starts, really starts to come into focus. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, the fact of using a um, a two vocal prong, two pronged vocal attack uh-huh. um, with Mike Harrison uh, as the uh, as the lower um, tenor part right. singer, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I suddenly got an image of, wow, this sounds familiar. How how, how where have I heard this? And um, I thought about it, and I thought, "Oh, I know. It's it's the Righteous Brothers. They're the only they the Righteous Brothers, and in a certain yeah. other way, um, the, Everly. the Everly Brothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, the Righteous Brothers were the first to have the two, you know, the Bare high and the low vocals. Yeah, uh, as opposed yeah. to the Everly's, which almost blends so well you it almost sounds like a single voice yeah, yeah I, mm-hmm. I hear you okay okay so that's where the inspiration came from that and you because yes you duplicate that uh, later in foreigner mm-hmm. so picking this up as you're working with gary uh at the, and i think you were in like one of the last if not the last iteration of spooky tooth right yeah and mm-hmm. and then yeah. he goes and does a, a solo project which I, I had the chance to interview gary a couple of years ago when uh this artifact uh was discovered remastered called ring of change uh from what was called the wonder wheel project uh and that had been in the dustbin for 40 years uh Mm -hmm. and you play on that uh on that album yeah it's a bit foggy that that time but um yeah gary had um and i had been um you know playing together at that point for a couple of years we were became great friends and and then, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, um, Spooky Tooth sort of came. Put it out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and basically, you know, Gary was approached by a, a manager in New York, DeAnthony, mm. to, um, to, um, pursue a, a, a solo career. Mm. And in, in a way I, I couldn't you know, blame him, but he, his leaving the band meant the demise of the band and, yeah. uh, and me surviving in New York city in 1975, I guess it was, yeah. um, living, um, in, uh, in a, in a different kind of world. <laughs> well, from it's France. Challenging and, yeah. And a, yeah. Yeah. So you go from Paris back to uh, yeah. London for a bit now to New York I think you end up in Leslie West's uh, one of his uh, projects right. uh, for a bit yeah. uh, and mm. that doesn't work because uh, Leslie has his own um, personal uh, drug issues yeah. uh, when you get right down to it and uh, you're now mm. back <laughs> almost back to the beginning living uh, pretty close to squalor uh, in New York City mm. Yeah, I'm I'm existing at that point with um, royalties uh, that are coming in from my writing um, career in France. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I had that to to fall on, but um, it was very shaky time. Uh, 
it was a, a kind of a dangerous time in New York. Those late seventies. Uh, oh God, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's... mid mid to late seventies. Yeah, I think the city goes bankrupt. A, uh... <laughs> so, yeah, so at that yeah. time, so not the best. I mean, we time could to be, be in for more of that, right? Oh well, let's let's cross our fingers we can get out of yeah. uh, of that. But yeah, so yeah, yeah I, I think you're you're living near the George Washington Bridge, I, I or tunnel, uh, if I if I remember right, uh, and uh, uh, you were Midtown Tunnel. Mid oh the Midtown Tunnel and. And uh, yeah. you get to meet, uh, I think, Bud Prager, and that changes things for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you start yeah. to put uh, your own act together uh, in mm-hmm. uh, in a 1976. Uh, and so, uh, and 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 diggers, uh, please. Now we've gone from 1961 to 1976. That that is a 15 year climb. Uh, to mm. get to, into this position, and and luckily, now it's really going to work out for you. Uh, so, mm. y- you know, seventy six is where it really all comes together for you. You assemble a real Anglo American supergroup of uh, two Brits and three Americans, uh, and I think originally the band was called Trigger, but it was changed to Form. Yeah. Is that correct? Um, That's so, correct. Yeah. So, uh, the first question is, how did you? put this together and why these particular guys well um but, uh, bud prager who you referred to earlier um had uh, been the manager of, of uh, leslie west when i joined leslie west and mm-hmm. um and when i was playing with leslie west he was my manager too i guess and um uh Leslie had been getting away with so many crazy shenanigans and unfortunately a, a darker side of that too. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were some horror stories of being left in the middle of nowhere, uh, after, after Leslie had absconded with the guitar from the support band and, uh, Oh, and um, and and and, uh, and ponded, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it was looking really grim, you know. And um, and uh, you know, it was a real low point in in my uh, in my in my search for you know success or whatever. Uh, it was it was a I thought what. I was kind of high and dry in New York, just getting by, and I thought, "Wow, Dennis, is it is, is it dental <laughs> time? <laughs> have I have I spent too long in spooky tooth?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, um, oh, there's a good. Hey, smoke went in on you there. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, isn't it always darkest before the dawn? That's what they say. And if you could say that was certain, certainly the case was with us. Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, you know, the band was uh, comprised at that point of um, a dear friend of mine, uh, Ian Lloyd, who was the ex singer for from the Stories, the um, American band, and um, on. Um, I uh, I also met up with uh, Ian um, 
Yeah, Ian McDonald. McDonald. Yeah, ex-King ex -King Crimson. Ex-King Crimson. Um, working with Mr. Fripp. We had become friendly. Oh, I'm sorry? I said working with Mr. Fripp. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, and um, uh, I was. it, it took uh, a long time to settle on the vocal um, position, you know, uh, I knew yeah, with I, the yeah. reference that I was working on from those singers that I had, I played with or, or emulated or whatever. Um, I, um, I knew it was, I, it wasn't going to be easy to find a singer that could, um, get into these songs and really bring some magic out of them. Uh, I, I thought we had the powerful, the songs were coming along, but it was all about who was going to portray them and sing them was the key, you know, obviously. Mm. Oh, God. And, um, uh, so that took a while. Yeah, I understand you You auditioned like over 40 people to yeah. try to yeah. get that right voice yeah. um, that mm -hmm. would sell these songs uh, because yeah. it all comes down to that, doesn't it? At the end of the day, as one of the people you referenced earlier said, uh, it's a job after all. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> yeah. you know, it is a job and a job is to be successful at it and make enough money to not have to worry about, you know, next week's uh, wages. Right, 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 right. So, so you you bring in uh, uh, Al Greenwood, um, uh, as you you mentioned, Ian McDonald. Uh, I think you got uh, uh, Ian Hunter's drummer. You stole Ian Hunter's drummer, I believe, <laughs> Dennis <laughs> Elliott. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then ended with uh, Ed uh, uh, Gag Gag Gagliardi. Gagliardi, excuse me, uh, yeah. on bass. Uh, I believe he's passed. Uh, rest in peace. Uh, yeah. and um, mm -hmm. uh, and now it's just finding the right singer. And you stumble across this uh, band, uh, Black Sheep, right? Uh huh. And that's did right. you know? I, um, I think I I didn't read that. Like as soon as you put the needle down, you're like, "That's the guy." Mm hmm. Yeah, I pretty much knew uh, immediately. Um, it was uh, something about the the timbre of the voice and the fact that he had he was like a big fan of uh, Steve Winwood. Um, uh, yeah. That was, Steve Winwood was mm -hmm. one of the voices I had in my head when I'd write songs, you know, it would, um, when I, before I had a, a, a fixed uh, singer. Um, yeah, go big I, or go I, I home, huh? Yeah, Steve yeah. Winwood, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, and uh, I, I, had, I had met, with Steve, I um, during those years I toured with him when he was uh, still in traffic. Mm. Oh, wow. and um, yeah, I mean it was that was another little period that was really uh, very cool. Was uh, working with the guys from Traffic and uh, yeah, and uh, them also being one of my favorite bands. And um, anyway, so so Lou Graham. 
is the 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 yeah. guy that that finishes up this uh, this outfit. Like I said, three Americans, two Brits. You've got another mm -hmm. American singer you're working with, uh, kind of like what you were doing with uh, with Gary Wright. Although it doesn't sound like that was consciously done. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you you know put this group of songs together. Uh, and I understand that uh, somehow the the mix didn't work, and you end up remixing the album. Why 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 did that happen? Well, um, Ian and I had become pretty um, much of a, 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 a you know a mixing kind of little partnership, and um, we you know he Ian had great taste as well, and. Uh, we we sort of developed um uh the style of working together and um we were both on the same page and uh it, it still meant that we would spend tremendous amounts of hours in the studio spending tremendous amounts of money but uh <laughs> yes yeah what are you yeah, going to do? It's, it's not, uh, boys and girls, it's not like today's uh, in uh, a recording yeah. studio at home, which, you know, so no. many of us have. Uh, yeah, the, uh -huh. the, these were few and far between and very expensive per hour. Yeah, certainly were. But it was, um, it was like a, um, well, what, what would you say? Uh, it was like... Um, uh, you know, you'd brag about it. Uh, people would come up to you basically and say, you know, so how many hours do you spend on that album? How many million dollars did you spend on that yeah, kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. I remember having to answer or people trying to get that out of me, you know, and it was a lot of it was crazy. You know, that, that was the motivation for for their work. So, you know, I guess... That's the way they did it, um, and we did a bit of it too, until we realized how much money and uh, important times of our life we were missing as well. So why why did you feel that it needed to be remixed before it was released? Um, it just really hadn't um, captured the way we the way I had seen the seen it uh, as a finished product in my head. Oh, okay. I kind of, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm very critical, mm -hmm. self-critical as well. And, um, but it's, um, you know, and I had to feel it was so important. Obviously it was, it was the, um, uh, you this know, was your moment. You knew it. You knew this was, this it, was, this was, yeah, it was either this or dentist, dentistry was coming. Yes, and uh, the teeth weren't doing it. <laughs> and the image of the dental uh, thing wasn't doing it. But, um, yeah, so um, we he was very critical, I was very critical, and, uh, you know, we we worked very, very well on those first couple of albums. And... Um, Oh, you know, the, it was, the, uh, the first four albums are, you know, yeah. just one after another are amazing. But mm -hmm. let's start March 77. 
you release their your debut album Foreigner, and it is filled with huge hits. Uh, now you guys, you kind of like the new Beatles. Uh, what was that moment like when, I mean, uh, this album literally drops and out the gate, uh, it yeah. is, it's a hit, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I'll, I don't, uh, say these very often, but I will hear, um, the first two albums I bought, uh, with my own money. Uh, I have older brothers and sisters and aunts, and I'd gotten a fairly decent record collection. But the first two albums, I actually took my money. I'd sold a bunch of greeting cards, went down to the record store, and I bought two albums. The first was Styx's Grand Illusion, which came out that year, and yeah. your album. Oh, thank you. Good. Yeah. Good investment. Yeah, it was a good <laughs> investment. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, as uh, as I was telling you, uh, reacquainting ourselves with the uh, with the catalog, uh, my wife and I last night were like, oh, my God, Headknocker. That was mm-hmm. a great song, which wasn't exactly one of the hits. The hits on that song no. feels like the first time, Cold as Ice, Long, Long Way From yeah. Home. Uh, but for me, I really love that song, uh, Headknocker. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we... Um... We're featuring that a bit more again in our shows. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, the 78 live performance, uh, which I believe was from the Rainbow in London, uh, yeah. it ends, uh, you use that as the the uh, the uh, the encore song, which tells me how important mm-hmm. that song is uh, to you guys yeah. and was at the at its time. Um, so mm-hmm. well, we got to get you back on the road so I can uh, actually see you performing here. So, all mm-hmm. right, yeah. along with that first, uh, uh, like I said, a string of giant albums, there's not a bust in the bunch. Uh, next comes Double Visions, then uh, Head Games, and then finally, uh, a Billboard number one uh, with Foreigner Four. Um, it's almost like a, a game plan uh, for the '70s. It's almost like that entire 15 years of you working your ass off really does prepare you for what is required. You know, a lot of people don't do very well with that sophomore effort, but I think Double Vision is even bigger and more important than Foreigner was. And the same with the third album. And obviously mm-hmm. the same with the fourth album, which, you know, just just to let the 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 the, uh, the listeners know, you know, we're we're talking uh, double vision has hot blooded blue morning, blue day, double vision. Those are three huge hits. Um, uh, you also have uh, um, uh, dirty white boy love on a telephone women and, and head games uh, off of um uh, the the uh, off uh, well, Game. Net Games album, and then uh, mm. Foreigner Four has got <laughs> Jukebox Hero, uh, you know, Urgent, uh, another favorite of mine. Uh, waiting for the girl, uh, waiting for a girl like you, and break mm-hmm. it up. It's just that that's that's a huge grouping mm. of songs in a you know about a five year period. Uh, it just, I, I mean, where do you go from there? Yeah, that's um, it's. Well, luckily, we've, I mean, it's been daunting at times, you know, and you always know that there are people, competitors or your peers or whoever yeah. are going to be listening and, they, you know, and um, who are going to hopefully be buying. And um, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. 
Okay, as, as I was just talking about, uh, you know, these this string of four albums, all top five, uh, four and a four uh, in uh, the number one position in 1981. But of course, the music industry is changing dramatically as you guys are accomplishing this feat. Yeah, punk, new wave, electronic music, hip hop is just starting, metal. They're all creeping into the scene and changing the the current sounds to something new. But you guys kind of are committed to remain in that classic sound. So how, how did you manage that and, and re- still remain so relevant? Um, well, I, I guess that as, as much as it's always been, um, you know, I, I set out to, to, to make albums that, that have things that uh, excite me, you know, um, it was, you know, great vocal lines, uh, great singing, great drum fills, and everything. And we 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 put everything we can without weighing it down, you know. And then it's a process of elimination what what you actually end up going with. Mm-hmm. But um, this tremendous amount of um, commitment goes into those albums, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, you know. Uh, I guess you could call me a taskmaster or a <laughs> perfectionist. <you> know, <laughs> I am not, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, I I do demand a very high performance for everybody that works on the albums, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, myself included. Were, so, were, you, were you were you affected by this other kind of music coming around? And, you know, I mean, obviously in the UK, you know, the punk uh, scene mm, was a big splash yeah. uh, in '77. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously the Sex Pistols, Clash, uh, are are a big deal. You have the new wave of British heavy metal, which is a, a big deal. But uh, none of these things really. Mm-hmm. You you know, you see other bands that kind of like, oh, this thing is happening. I think we should incorporate some of that into our sound. Yeah. But you don't do that. You do not do that at all. No. No, no, you're just um, building on this this vision, which I think we both agree kind of starts a little bit around the spooky tooth uh, uh, era where you realize, ah, this group of instruments really speaks to me. And that is kind of duplicated in Foreigner, obviously with much greater success. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah I um it's difficult, you know, analyzing. I, yeah. I, if I start analyzing it, I, I kind of lose <laughs> lose my way a bit. Um, I prefer much more that, um, you know, it's the, these are spontaneous um, get-togethers in the studio that, uh-huh. uh, okay, yeah, we can rehearse that song or two for a few days. That's that's fine, depending on how much time you got, uh, what the schedules are like. Schedules at the moment are incredibly full. Thank God. Yeah. But um, uh, we, um, you know, nevertheless, it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of concentration and uh, preparation. And and the current band members are all very much contributors as well. And um, you know, we'll be um, featuring a, a little more as we go along. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it, we're trying to maintain that um, feeling of a band. It, it really is. It's it's the most fun I've I can remember. 
being actually being in a band that uh, I walk into a bunch of smiles every night and they persist during the performance and I come off stage a happy man. I can imagine. So I can imagine. Yeah. So so around this time, uh, this new channel shows up called MTV. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Foreigner's already at the top of the game. Uh, and in 1984, you guys uh, release uh, Agent uh, Provocateur, which ends up having the biggest hit, I think, still of your career. I want to know what mm-hmm. love is. Uh, and I yeah. think that benefited from the marketing of that channel. Do you, you think that's a, a fair assessment? Um, I would say so, yeah. Uh, it was... Um... It, it's caused that particular song. I want to know what love is. Has caused differences of opinion within the band. You know, um, uh, as 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 um, you know, being being signifying that we're taking it easy. We're going soft. We're giving up the rock <laughs> edge and all that kind of stuff. And it's like. That's oh, well, the, it's really, the age well, of power ballads. I mean, you know, you got yeah. hard rock bands that are doing songs yeah. like that. I, that's yeah. uh, but I can see where uh, where internally uh, there may be questioning. Uh, but what do you say when it becomes one of the biggest selling singles of all time? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, proofs in the. What do you say exactly? <laughs> so, but, you know, um, no, I do, I'm 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 still very proud of that. I. Uh, I don't share the opinion that uh, the, that we lock, lost the rock edge. Um, if you listen to those albums um, that were made after "I Want to Know What Love Is," they um, they're pretty. They've got some pretty tough stuff in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just a, a one of a collection of songs uh, on, yeah. on an album out there, even though it's, you know, the one that stands out uh, at that particular time. So yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit, because it is such a, a, a big and important song, uh, you know, the, how you write. Um, uh, is it always the same process for you? Is it kind of more workmanlike, uh, you know, reminds me of Jackson Brown, who, you know, every day, you know, starts with a cup of coffee and sits down at the piano and then just, you know, goes back and back and back. Or is it more immediate inspirational, kind of like uh, Elton John or, you know, who just like yeah, gets his lyrics from Bernie and just starts, you know, writing yeah. a song in 10 minutes? Or or is it something in between? Yeah, it's... um. It's really, you know, I I find it difficult to work to a schedule in a way. That's probably why I'm not a, you know, a, a Broadway uh, songwriter or something. <laughs> you know, I I uh, yeah, I um I need I need um, a clear kind of road to to drive down. You know, and uh, I I don't really um. What Bernie Taupin does—it's amazing. You yeah, know, yeah. How how closely he he can um, represent Elton's passion and build the passion in the songs and and write superb uh, melodies. I mean, uh, lyrics and um, and and really uh, get inside the songs. So um, I'm more in that 
that direction. Right, 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 right. Where you and Lou could work together and uh, and put the, that same sort of two heads uh, uh, to uh, yeah. to create the whole uh, out there. <laughs> but it's uh, I think as you're, you're you're saying, it's more the muse needs to strike as opposed to just hammering it out uh, every day. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, all right. First, it must be said, you guys had one hell of a run. I mean, 10 years of solid hits. You're owning the touring business. Uh, uh, but in 87, Inside Information becomes the first album not to chart in the top 10. So by the late 80s, music has changed so much. It seems as if, you know, the public is kind of tiring of the foreigner sound or, or mm-hmm. you know, is that fair to, to, to say? And, and now with hindsight being 2020, you know, uh, would you would you or could you have changed things at that moment, or it's just the nature of the business? Yeah, I mean, I think um, unfortunately the uh, chemistry between Lou and I took a bit of a hit, yeah. and um, you know, he was fairly strong-minded about what he wanted to do, which was uh, to me kiss was branch out and do a solo album, you know. Uh, there are people who can pull that off. But, oh. um, I don't think, um, I, I think there are certain that can't, unfortunately. Right. Um, right. They can have a, a single or a big hit, but um, as far as a career goes, I think it's very difficult to maintain it as as an ex-leader of, or an ex-lead singer of you know, whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he went and uh, and uh, started a band called Shadow King uh, for a short yeah. period of time. Uh, and but you guys do come back together, which this is a weird story that I I found that it you guys reconciled mm. over the L.A. Rodney King riots. That's right. We were. I I was in L.A. Lou was um, up in his hometown of Rochester and um, was was flying in to meet, to work. And um, uh, the um, they were shooting at the airplanes coming in. So he ran the gamut. And, uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and we, you know, they closed down everything, planes, yeah. transport. It was like a ghost town, like it is. Is in New York at the moment. It's, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I I, I was in the uh, San Fernando Valley uh, at that moment. Yeah, uh, so I I remember being you know, afraid. How far north was this coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess when but, two um, old friends are uh, put under uh, I don't know warlike conditions. Uh, <laughs> maybe all of the extraneous uh, issues. Uh, melt away and and you're left realizing yeah. hey we really got a good thing going on yeah i think that's really what happened to us at the um hall of fame the songwriters hall of fame uh, you know we we hung out together for a day and um did the uh acceptance the next night which was incredible and i think we both sort of it brought us home that we what we had achieved and um you know, the the depth of recognition that we had. And uh, it was just great. Just um and really that's that's all I need. Yeah. 
yeah. is, um, you know, the the uh, respect from my peers, mm-hmm. let's say, and um, you know, just uh, just out here still trying to make a buck or two, right? To say, right, right, right. <laughs> So, so you guys kind of got back together. Uh, you went on some tours, uh, but I, Lou had some health uh, issues uh, and whatnot. So, yeah. in two thousand six, you found someone who could pull off these songs with some sort of authenticity in Kelly Hansen, and he's been mm-hmm. with you ever since. How how lucky were you to find another voice that that, that could fit those songs so well? Well, Kelly came along really with not only the voice but a tremendous um stage presence yeah and um uh i really welcome that because um although we'd had some some great great uh, rock hits um we we had never really conquered the stage with those hits uh-huh. as as far as I could see. I felt that we still had a little bit left in reserve there to um, to go for a, a bit more of an aggressive uh, stance and stage and and um, and, uh, and and the presence of a commanding lead singer. Um, Lou was one of the best singers in the world, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from from I'm not taking anything away from him. At all, you know, but uh, um, it was it was a, a, a big change to have uh, a more dynamic uh, stage presence. So we'll be, see, the the heat wasn't on him so much. To, to, yeah, you know, he was, um, and the, so we've done shows, you know, with Lou. Oh yeah, coming back. Well, yeah. uh, to me, yeah. that's that's incredible. Uh, in the sense, I, I, look, I, I'm a lead singer in a classic rock band uh, myself, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine the guys that I, I'm I'm singing standing behind me as I'm doing it. That would intimidate the shit out of me. Well, that that was what sort of swung it for me when I first heard Kelly sing. We did the same process. We sent mm-hmm. like a. a a two or three song demo karaoke right shit, yeah and um it was immediately obvious to me that i thought now we've i've only auditioned about three people who have really cut it i mean for me it was immediate there was a certain timbre in kelly's voice that i had that i heard that had um really reminded me of kelly's uh Kind of like when you first uh, when you first heard Lou uh, on on record, uh, it was same sort yeah. of thing. Immediately, you knew this yeah. was the guy, right? Yeah. Right. And then in two thousand nine, oh, and um, go ahead. No, just and his ability to um, to understand the song and how it should be sung, mm-hmm. and also at the same time personalizing it, and um, you know hell out of it every yeah, night yeah yeah and um i i the bell rang and that was it you know yeah yeah and then in 2009 you get back into the studio now armed with kelly on vocals 
and you guys get yourselves back into the top 40. Uh, you know, not bad for a band that's been around for over 30 years now. Um, why do you think that album worked so well for the public? Um, well, I think, um, you know, the things that kind of uh, changed, the, the wheel had turned um, as it keeps on doing. And... Um, I, I kind of went into that feeling that we should just do as much as we could keep it as um, not try and go in and make a so-called, you know, like uh, updated album with new, that, I don't think that would work for us or really for anybody. Mm. So we just had to sort of go in and, um, and dig down and uh, there are a few, um, ideas that I'd had in, uh, in waiting and, um, a couple of good, good tracks came out of that album and, uh, certainly have, um, gained some recognition over here. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. And then, uh, while you produced it along with, uh, Marty Fredrickson, Time. um, uh, that's right. Yeah. There's one track that was produced by then a hot young producer, who has since gone on to become a household name for himself, uh, Mark Rodson, uh, <laughs> he of Uptown Funk, maybe the best song produced in the last decade. Uh, mm -hmm. Why did you let your stepson uh, into the control room, and how do you think he did for you on that track? You know, he's he's a wonderful guy, apart from anything else even. You know, he's, he's so... Um, he's cool, calm, and collected... And he's also a great human being. He's the real. Aww. He's a guy that does a lot of good in the world. He mm -hmm. interests himself in a lot of very worthy causes. And yeah. um, apart from just being a you know a, a music, super producer um, uh, and musician superstar. himself, uh, yeah, yeah uh, uh, the you know playing with some of the the greatest artists of the last decade, uh, Amy Winehouse, yeah. Gaga. Uh, the list could go on, yeah. but this is not his interview. This is your interview, but let's just say he, he learned uh, some things from you, I think would be fair. Yeah. He's a couple of times he's, um, he's taken me aside somewhere or somebody comes over for an autograph or whatever, you know, the weirdest kind of way these things happen. But yeah. um, uh, he, he, he very often, turned to me and said, Mick said, um, I really owe a lot of the, the stuff to you. You're yeah. such a great influence on me. Oh. And, you know, it's usually something just like that. And it's kind of um, quite disarming. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's, uh, but um, it's it's great to know that, um, you know, I I did something good for him uh and then i contributed to uh yeah you know it, it's very nice it's a very nice feeling from for me i bet personally and yeah. um yeah he's, he's a great guy yeah what can i say so now speaking of producing not only have you been behind the boards for all of foreigner works but you've done a few side projects uh, Billy Joel mm -hmm. Stormfront, uh, which has We Didn't Start the Fire on it. Uh, Still Friends. Uh, I think you're, you, in fact, I saw that urgent that you guys did with uh, Billy's residency at MSG last night. 
on fire. That was really amazing. Uh, the Colts <laughs> Beyond uh, Good and Evil, Ben E. King Save the Last Dance. But here's what I know everybody wants to hear. They want to hear about you replacing Ted Templeman on Sammy Agar's first album with the Van Halen Brothers, 5150. How did that come about, and how do you feel about taking a band at the height of their fame and making a controversial lead vocal change? Well, um, I think uh, when I've been approached about production, I think for strong vocal performances, Mm -hmm. um, overall arrangements and stuff like that, plus somebody who has had the experience of, um, you know, making very successful rock records. Yeah, and Sammy and, uh, definitely kind of a journeyman kind of guy, almost like yourself. Yeah, and we, yeah, we go back a long, long way. And mm -hmm. um, some uh, backup, you know, for himself. He's, uh, he's great, he, he, and he always gives 100% everything he does you know so uh it, it wasn't a, a difficult assignment really they were well prepared you know it was whether i was going to take a chance i just felt that i needed to step out and get a little fresh air from uh from my band and um and uh it worked well it was a bit of a refreshing kind of tonic at that point in I my bet. uh my career. So. I bet. I bet. No now, regrets. No. <clears throat> Great album, by the way, uh, and stellar production uh, on it. So uh, a couple of, of questions here. Um, uh, you know, I did a Grammy and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame search. And how the fuck are you and Foreigner not ever gotten those accolades? Um. I don't really talk about it as much <laughs> anymore. It's just I don't I don't get pumped up about it let's put it that way we uh we've been nominated a few times for different things but you know we all know what that that means you yeah win. yeah it's and, uh, it, you know let's face it it's a popularity contest uh yeah. uh and uh it it you know we we have a show on our network who cares about the rock hall with uh Kristen stewart and joe kozala uh who every week uh discuss the good and bad and ugly of uh the rock and roll uh hall of fame so uh i just am surprised i was really surprised that you have three grammy nominations but not a not a win that that really shocked me uh i i think you yeah. guys will get into the rock and roll hall of fame uh one way or another uh, but I was mm -hmm. just really surprised about that. So uh, yeah. as we said at the top, although it looks like 2020 is a bust for touring, you were planning on going out on the road with a massive reformation of all things foreigner, having originals Lou, Dennis, Dennis Elliott, Ian McDonald, and Al Greenwood join Kelly, Tom Gimbel, Jeff Pilsen, Michael Bluestein, Bruce Watson, and Chris Frazier. It just sounds like that was going to be a blast. Oh, yeah. It, um, it has been and uh, will be, hopefully, you know. Uh, Do you think the real the span, uh, the Jukebox Heroes uh, tour was going to move to 2021? Um, oh, yeah. We'll be, we'll be, you know, as soon as we can safely, you know, feel safe about doing, about putting not just uh, our safety in um, together, but 
basically, you know, more small, so the 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 the, um, the danger for the fans. Yeah, we need to yeah. uh, be sure that we're not doing anything silly. Right. Obviously, and um, the opportunity we have will will be out there. Well, we want to see you out there as soon as possible. So um, uh, I know you're also working on a musical, uh, I think, called Jukebox. Uh, How's that going? Is is there still work on that, or is that also just stopped at the moment? Yeah, that stopped, obviously, with uh, what we've been doing. But Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of on hold. Uh, We're looking at some new um, producers. And uh, so it's in, you know, it's in limbo a bit, but Mm. uh, I think uh, this year we should be able to move it on a bit. Let's hope so. It's a whole different, whole different world. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I was cut out for that. Oh, uh, the the musicals, the, yeah, you, well, uh, the musical side of things is that's a whole, yeah, you're right. That's uh that's like making movies or something like that. That's another part of the entertainment business. So you'll give them the songs and let them, uh, put, uh, put something together that, uh, at the end of the day, that's the only way to do it. I think. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) All right. All right. Last question for you, Mick, um, just because you have been there almost from the very beginning of this rock and roll era which literally is going on 70 years. I mentioned that to somebody I was interviewing last week, and they were like, really? Seven? Yeah, think about it, 1955. Uh, we're, we're, we're coming up on 70 years. It's pretty crazy. So pretty ha- well. yeah. having spanned almost the entire history of rock and roll yourself, and then this is a big question, so please look into your crystal ball, go as far as you want, but what do you think this music will be in, say, 100 years? Um, well, I was thinking about that. Uh, it's obviously, it's hard to say what, if it's a, a, a music's been very resilient. Uh, it's the first time that there's been that amount of um, time of, uh, you know, relevancy yeah. in, in, in music, yeah. how important it's been sustained that way for 70 years, as you said. So it's going to take some something really strong to take over the reins, whether it's even music, or going to be more in the electronic world of uh, more things that um, you know these days things are so sophisticated you could use them in in weapon war weaponry. <laughs> it's crazy, you know. Um, the uh, the level of uh, sophistication. Um, so, music-wise, I, I, it's already changing quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a new era. There's a lot more interest. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of like it. It sounds to me like some of these playlists sound like um, listening to my father's old albums when I was a kid. Oh. And it's like... Uh, yeah, I think nostalgia is a, a part of that. Yeah. Um, and um, as far as the music itself, I mean, it just depends how many um, how many great writers can come and, and do something about that. And, um, you know, but I think um, music's come so far, I don't think it's just going to die out or... You know, I, I think there's 
there's a long history ahead, future, for, um, for, for the kind of music we've been doing. Um, but uh, there again, I, I don't really know how to describe what we do. It's just uh, people seem to have fun listening to it. And as long as it's uh, good old fun as well, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Well, Mick Jones, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs today. Thank you, man. Mick Jones. Tellement amusement. That was uh, my French for Mick spending so much time there. So very glad we could have him join us uh, for a little quarantine conversation. Oh, and uh, let's give it up to that Junior Walker sax solo from Urgent, along with more hooks than you'd find at any meatpacking plant. Of course, diggers, please go spend some time with all things Mick Jones on your music platform of choice. Also, um, go read his autobiography, A Foreigner's Tale, from your favorite bookseller. As I said at the top, uh, a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with Foreigner. Uh, they love to hate them. Uh, that is, until they need a romantic song to get someone in the mood, or if they want to hear a big anthem to pump them up, or they need a good driving music for fun, or they just want to sing at the top of their lungs to songs that may have been overplayed at the time, but you know is at least a guilty pleasure. I know who you are. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like I said, the, the band used to fit a category sometimes called arena rock or corporate rock. It's a derision for bands that really the, the crime is selling too many records. And at times, yeah, being considered rather bland musically or not in your face excitement or lyrically filled with insight and depth. But, you know, there, there's a lot of music out there for whatever mood you might be in or for whatever emotional need you require. Uh, for the last two weeks, we did episodes on thrash metal and punk, uh, both of which are about as far apart musically as the dominating arena rock of the age. But like I said about those two musical genres being two sides of the same coin, yeah, I might suggest the creamy middle being bands like Foreigner. Yeah, see what you want about this rock act. They dominated the charts for about 10 years. Again, 16 top 40 hits and over 80 million albums sold. I can tell you, writing a single hit is like winning the lottery. Writing three to five pretty much guarantees you a lengthy career. What does 16 get you? A bad reputation for sucking the oxygen out of the room from other bands who might be worthy of a shot? Uh, but is that Mick's fault? Hells no. 
This is skill at a very high level. He can't be blamed for that. And that gets me to the big point I want to make here. While I was doing my research prior, prior to speaking with the man, I was shocked that Foreigner is not already in the Rock Hall and that they never received a Grammy, though they were nominated uh, three times. Uh, can't do much about the Grammys, but if Bon Jovi's in the hall, Foreigner should be as well. So I went to the expert on our Pantheon pod team and asked Joe Quazala from Who Cares About the Rock Hall why. And here's what Joe said, I quote, While Foreigner is a big mainstream band, they have never been critically adored. And the hall has only recently started to warm up to those types of bands, Journey, Bon Jovi, Chicago. That only happened in the last four years. A lot of rock bands that aren't in the hall think there's some conspiracy theory behind their exclusion, but that's always disproved. I think the three bands that I just listed all throughout thought that, and then, of course, were inducted eventually. And it's confirmed that Amit Erdogan, who was in charge of the hall for many years, tried to get Foreigner on the ballot, but the nominating committee just wasn't feeling it. I'm sure Foreigner will get in eventually. Too big to ignore, if you ask me. Some acts just have to wait. Un end quote. So there is that. Uh, again, again, to me, it's all good. Uh, because Foreigner's music has stood the test of time. And really, that's the judge for anything. Okay, next week, we continue with Legends uh, when we talk with Doug Cosmo Clifford of Creedence Clearwater Revival. He gives me all the good, bad, and ugly with the band from El Cerrito, California that authentically sounds like they all just walked out of a Louisiana swamp. The first band to truly knock the Beatles off the top of the pops. Join me for that one. Diggers, stay safe out there, and please... Keep up the rocking. Diggs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.